Now, as we come to the twelfth chapter of the Gospel of John, we are going to make the visit that I've mentioned several times, and that is the visit to the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha and Bethany. And it reveals many things. And one of the things, it's the fact that our Lord put a great emphasis on the home and upon marriage. In the Gospel of John, he opens his public ministry in a wedding in Cana of Galilee. He closes his public ministry by a visit to this home. So our Lord put a great emphasis upon the home, the Christian home, and the home that is a godly home, and a marriage that has the blessing of God upon it. Now, this is a very lovely picture that is given to us here, and I'm begin reading it, verse 1. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. This is a very beautiful picture that we have here. This is a delightful dinner at Bethany, the supper that is in the home of Lazarus. Now, will you notice the three that are there? Lazarus, who's been raised from the dead. He's in fellowship with Christ. And this is the picture that our Lord would give when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And this man now is brought into fellowship with Christ. He's been raised from the dead physically. But you and I are brought into fellowship with Christ through a spiritual resurrection. And that is, you and I were dead in trespasses and sins. We had no knowledge of him, nor did we have any fellowship with him. But he that believeth on him, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me, he shall never die. And so here's Lazarus in fellowship with the Lord Jesus. What a picture that we have here. Then we have something else. We have Martha serving. Lord bless her. She's always serving. (laughs) Everywhere you find Martha, she's putting on a meal. That's her gift. And I think it's a gift of the Holy Spirit to many today. And here's Mary sitting at his feet. And this is a marvelous picture of today those that are his own. It's the home. I have made this statement many times in my ministry, and I continue to make it. The church began in the home. It may end in the home. Many of these great churches today are turning away from God, turning away from the things of God. They're no longer a place of delightful fellowship and blessing. They happen to be a place where activities carried on, and a false sort of fellowship is harped upon all the time. But it's not really there. 
here is Lazarus raised from the dead, and he's in fellowship with the Lord Jesus there in the home. And Mary is sitting at his feet. She's learning. If we're to have fellowship with him, we must know him. Know him as Savior and then grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. That's what she's doing. Mary is sitting at his feet. It's the place of adoration. It's the place of worship. And then Martha's serving. And believe me today, a great many folk talk about fellowship. And they also talk about learning. And they're generally doing a great deal of sitting. But they do very little serving. All three are essential. And it should be a picture of the church today. What a picture we have here. Now, our attention is called to the fact that Mary here has anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. There are those that try to synchronize this incident with the woman who was the harlot that washed Jesus' feet. I think that you'll have trouble with Mary someday over that. This is an altogether different incident. If you consider the details, you'll find out that the only similarity that we have is that the Lord Jesus had his feet washed by tears and his feet anointed with the ointment. And the hair of the women in both cases was used. And we are told that the odor of the ointment just filled that place. Delightful, you know. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. And notice here Judas Iscariot is revealing his true nature. He says, Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and he had the bag and bare what was put therein. Now, here you have a picture of Judas Iscariot. He was the treasurer of the group, and he didn't care for the poor. But the thing that he cared for was for himself, and he was a thief, and he was taking some out on the side. So he wanted it given to the poor so he could handle it and take out his percentage. May I say to you today, the real test of a Christian I think is the hard coin test, is the way he handles his finances. And the real test of a Christian organization is the way it handles its finances. real test of a church is the way it handles its finances. When money is given for a certain cause, is it used for that cause? Or is some taken out, you know, and moved elsewhere? May I say to you, friends, this is the thing that Judas Iscariot did. Money given for a certain thing, he used it for something else. And I want to say to you, our Lord said he was a thief. That's what he was. I think he'd still call those folk thieves. Now, will you notice, Then said Jesus, let her alone. Against the day of my burying has she kept this. Against the day of my burying. Now, this is a remarkable incident. The fact of the matter is, the Lord says, The poor, you have them with you always, but me ye have not always. The thing that she's done reveals the fact that she had entered into his death. 
and they talk today about the apostolic succession. I don't care too much being in that succession. The apostles miss the entire incident. But this woman did this just to let the Lord Jesus know that she entered into his death. She sensed that he was to die for the sins of the world. And she is doing this ahead of time. And you remember in the other Gospels, the Lord Jesus said that this incident, wherever this gospel is preached, this incident's going to be recorded. And you know that the wonderful odor, the fragrance of that incident, not only filled the room at that time, but it's filled the world, this lovely thing that she did. And what a contrast that you have here between her and Judas Iscariot. Here's where light and darkness are coming together. Judas the darkness, Mary the light. She has entered in to the death of Christ, and the others had missed it altogether. Now we're told, much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus, also whom he had raised from the dead. These are curiosity seekers. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. They wanted to get him out of the way, you know, because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. Now, personally, I think that you can write over this, the fact that this faith was like the faith at the very beginning when he first came up to Jerusalem. It said, Then many believed on him when he cleansed the temple. But he committed not himself unto them because he knew what was in man. It was a belief based then on curiosity. And here it's definitely based on that. It wasn't for Jesus' sake. They wanted to see Lazarus. Now we have in verse 12, "...on the next day much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees, and went forth to meet him, and cried, Hosanna! Blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord." Now, I made the statement before that we had had the last public appearance of Jesus. And that was true. Here, this is a public offer of himself as their king, which they, of course, rejected. But he's no longer mixing among the people and teaching. That has ceased. That has ended. This is an act that he performed. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's coat. Now, what you have here is not much of a triumph, and John makes that clear. The fact of the matter is, he was just fulfilling prophecy in doing this, and he merely offered himself. That is all. And verse 16, "...these things understood not his disciples at the first." You see, they haven't entered into his death. The only one that has is this woman Mary. Notice, though, what John says, "...then remembered they that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things unto him when?" But when Jesus was glorified, not until after his death and resurrection. Now we have the people 
therefore that was with him when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead by a record. You see, this is the curiosity crowd that were there. They're the curiosity seekers. They were there to applaud the hero of the hour. And our Lord is not teaching, you notice, at this time. For this cause the people also met him, for that they had heard that he had done this miracle. You see, they were there just because of the miracle that had been. Now the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world has gone after him. Now this was just his brief moment of triumph, and it was right before his death. And Christ could go to the crown, obviously, without going to the cross. But if he went to the crown, if he was the ruler today, friends, you and I would never have been saved. But he has to go with the cross if he's to save you and me. What a picture that we have here in this incident that is given at this particular time. Now, this, as we've said, is this brief moment of triumph. And this is no triumphal entry. And there's actually just a very brief moment of triumph. The artist, Doré, gave a very remarkable painting of the crucifixion. I think it's the only one that I care for, and it was very expressive and eloquent. Actually, all that was in the picture were these three crosses, and they were empty. The bodies of those who had been crucified had been taken down. And in the background, there is a little donkey, and he is eating on a palm frond. That's all. (laughs) What a message. Here is all of the tokens of the so-called triumphant entry. But what is the important thing? There's that cross on which he died. And where was the crowd that cried, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. Well, they are the crowd that the next day said, crucify him, and they're gone. They're no longer following him. He's in the tomb now, but he'll be back the third day. You see, this actually was not a quite public appearance. It's a public offer of himself as the king, and he certainly was rejected in this hour. Now we have another incident that took place that's recorded here. We find there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast, In verse 21, now, the same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip, they tell Jesus. Have you noticed how Philip, the quiet one, he had to run and get Andrew, and he said, there's some Greeks here that want to see Jesus. And so they go now together. Andrew said, well, let's just bring them to Jesus. And notice this, when Andrew and Philip tell Jesus, here's the way he answered. And Jesus answered them, saying, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. You see, he's now in the shadow of the cross. He's conscious of the hour. What hour? Well, a crisis, that toward which he's moved that toward which he's come out of eternity. 
Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and he's come out of eternity for this hour. And you remember that he said to his mother yonder at the beginning of his ministry, "'Mine hour has not yet come.'" He now says the hour is come. What is that hour? When he is going to the cross. And so these Greeks want to see Jesus. Why? Well, he's raised a man from the dead. And so he directs the attention of the Greeks to the cross. His conception of the cross was far different than that held by the Roman populace. It was to them a place of infamy and disgrace and shame, a gibbet where criminals died. It was the hangman's noose, the electric chair, the lethal gas chamber. And he became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And why? Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it's written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. And then on the third day he's raised from the dead, crowned with glory and honor that by the grace of God he should taste death for every man. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. The glory of God is seen in that cross. The time has come when he's to be glorified. And friends, he was glorified when he died for you and me. He was glorified when he came forth from that tomb. Mercy and pardon and forgiveness is found at that cross, and it's of supreme importance. Listen to him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. This is actually a very wonderful verse. The importance is added here by the verily, verily. Now, when our Lord speaks, it's well for us to hear. When he says verily one time, it's very important to hear. And when he says verily, verily two times, then it's of supreme importance. And here is a great principle that he puts down that's in the physical realm. You take a grain of wheat, and you can look at it, and you can see it, but you have to put that grain of wheat in the ground. And what happens to it? It dies. But it doesn't stay there. What happens is it comes up. There is the blade and the ear, and then the harvest. Now, these Greeks had come, and they said, we'd see Jesus and there are many today think they've seen him because they've read the Gospels and studied his life. Well, that doesn't mean you see him or know him at all, friends. You see, Renan, the brilliant French skeptic, he could write a brilliant life of Christ as far as the historical part, but when he attempted to interpret Christ, he's absolutely wrong. The fact of the matter is, He sounds rather stupid to have been the brilliant man that he was. He'd never seen Jesus, actually. Now, until you and I comprehend his death and his resurrection, we've never seen Jesus. He died a redemptive death. He gave his life in death that you and I might have life. 
This is a great principle. He puts down, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. That seems a strange thing to say to the Greeks that have come to see him. And he's saying, it's more than just seeing me physically or seeing me in the gospel. Important thing is that you've got to see that I'm going to die. And he's put into the ground. And you say, you can't see the grain of wheat. No, but you know when it comes up, friends, that there's life there. And he died and rose again. How important this is to see here. Now he says in verse 25 something else that may sound very strange to us today. He says, He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. Now, what did he mean when he said that? Well, this is another great miracle he's talking about. There are two kinds of life, and they're put in contrast here. There is what is known as psychological life, the psyche. And that life enjoys the things of this world, and it finds satisfaction with the things of sense. And it has to do with the gratification of the senses. And you can whoop it up, you know, with this life down here. He that loveth his life. That is this physical, natural life that you have. And friends, you can whoop it up. You can drink it up. You can take drugs. Oh, you can really paint the town red. But you know what's going to happen? One day you're going to die. And that's it. You'll lose it. (laughs) You're going to lose it. I'm sorry, but you'll lose it, friends. I heard of a Baptist preacher down in Texas years ago. He was sensational, very sensational. And the rich man of the town, who was a church member, but he had broken every law of God and man, living in sin, drinking drunkard. And they asked this preacher, he was an outstanding preacher in the town, to preach the funeral. And all the rich came. And there were a lot of them there. It was in an oil section of Texas. A lot of the rich there, they were living high. The fast crowd, the jet set, they were there. Now, this preacher did something I wouldn't do. And maybe I should do it, but I'd never done it. I never would do it. But you know what he did? He preached a gospel message. Then he stepped down to the casket, and he preached on the fact of what sin will do for an individual, that it will finally send a man to hell. And I tell you, they were getting a little uneasy, those that were sitting there. When he stepped down to the casket, he says, I want you to come up here and look at a man that's already had it. His life's in the past. He's lived it up. He's through. He despised God, and he turned his back on Jesus Christ. And then he looked at that crowd and he said, this is the way that each one of you going to end up unless you turn to Jesus Christ. Now, friends, that's making it very plain, maybe a little too plain, or maybe it's the way it, it should be. We need to tell it like it is today. And so here, our Lord is saying that he that loveth his life shall lose it. If you live it up down here, you'll lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world, and he's making a contrast here, it means that you do not live for this world or the things of the world. You keep it under life eternal. And eternal life comes what? 
through the death of that grain of wheat that fell into the ground and rose again. And that grain of wheat's the Lord Jesus Christ, friends. Now, that's the way that you can save your life and the only way that you can. This is a tremendous statement that he makes here. Now, in verse 27, he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I under this hour. Now, there is a suffering that's connected with the cross of Christ that you and I cannot comprehend. He just didn't suffer at the hands of man. That was bad enough. And that is as far as anyone can go today, of course. But he suffered beyond that. You see, what happened was your sin and my sin was put upon him. You see, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief there on the cross. But who's worthy? They weren't his own. He was the happy Jesus when he walked this earth. For the joy that was set before him, he came and endured the cross. But you see... Who's worthy? He hath borne our sorrows and carried our griefs. And our sin was put upon him. He was made sin for us, not in some academic manner, but actually made sin for us. And it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief, and he hath made his soul an offering for sin. And so my sin was put upon the Holy One, the One who was holy and undefiled and separate from sinners. But He was made sin for you and for me. And there was a suffering there that you and I cannot comprehend. It's been put like this, none of the ransom ever knew. How deep were the waters crossed, how dark the night the Lord passed through ere He found His sheep. That was lost. And so his soul stood in horror. He was aghast before that cross. But he came to go to the cross to endure the shame of it. And there was glory in the cross, friends. And today we ought to make more of it. Paul said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Now, you see how that ties together. He that loveth his life shall lose it. You can tell today the way a person's living, very frankly, friends, where they're headed. Somebody says, I thought it was by faith, and you always emphasize faith and not works. I sure do. If you're going to be saved, you're going to have to trust him. It's believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, not work yourself to death. But I want to say that when you come to him and trust him, it's going to change your life. And it doesn't change your life, then you didn't trust him. You didn't rest in him then because of the very fact that the thing that will take place is that it will affect your life. And it will mean that you'll no longer live for the things of this world. When I see some of these Christians today putting the money they're putting in homes and putting in the things of this world and in automobiles and these things down here, I wonder really where their heart is. One man that he's, I think, mortgaged every dime he's got in 
order to buy the things of this world. He told me how he was looking for the Lord to come. And I thought it just disgusted me and others that heard him speak of he just wanting the Lord to come. And he had every gadget down here to live by. May I say to you, it would break his heart if the Lord came and he had to leave these things down here. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Now, if any man serve me, let him follow me. It's nonsense today to say you are believing in Jesus and then living for the devil. You're not trusting him. This thing has to change your life, friends, or you're the worst kind of a hypocrite. And he says, And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. And it's not a question today of the Lord going with us. Are we where the Lord is? That's the important thing. Are you where the Lord is? One man said to me, he says, Well, you know, I'm a member of a liberal church, but I take the Lord with me. My friend, I have news for you. The Lord doesn't go to church there. The question is not, is the Lord with you, but are you with the Lord? That's what he says here, that there also shall my servant be. Where? Where I am. You have to be where he is. This idea that the Lord's going with you, you better go with him. That's the thing that's important. Say, this is tremendous. And these are his last words, you see, that he's saying at this particular time. Now, will you notice what he says here? That his hour has come, and he's troubled. And he says, Glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I both glorified it, and I will glorify it. You see, heaven couldn't remain silent. It had to respond. And when that voice came from heaven, why, notice the reaction. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel spoke to him. Now, which were right? Actually, neither one were right. It wasn't an angel. It was the Father speaking to him. But you see, this is as far as those people could come toward God. The ministry of angels in the Old Testament is something that is tremendous. When God had a message from man, it generally came through the angel of the Lord. And that was the pre-incarnate Christ. But you see, they said an angel. But others said that, well, it thundered. Now, will you look at that for a moment? There were those that gave a natural explanation. They said, sure, we heard a voice. Sure, all this took place, but just thundered. It was natural, a natural explanation. The liberal today says it thundered. When he comes to the Word of God, he says, this is not God's Word. It's full of errors. And they say that the Bible is something you can't trust and that miracles in there can't be accurate. You know why they can't be accurate? Because they don't believe in them. And isn't that too bad? They don't believe in them. May I say to you, all they're saying is, it thundered. But there were some there that said, the angels spoke to him. That's the supernatural. Let me put it like this. I heard of a preacher, and I was going to identify the spot, but a better not. And he told some folk that were attending a Bible class where they were listening to my tapes on the book of Revelation. He said that nobody could understand the book of Revelation. It didn't make sense. 
Well, what ignorance he reveals. Actually, the most logical book in the New Testament, and our Old Testament for that matter, that is probably the most systematic book just happens to be the book of Revelation. And to him, you see, it thundered, just a noise. But the others who believed in the supernatural, it was articulate. An angel spoke to him, you see. That is the supernatural, and that's the conservative viewpoint. So that today, it's not any different it was then. The Word of God speaks today, and there's some say just thundered. The others say, God's speaking. That's the explanations that you get today. And in this Word of God here, his birth was supernatural. His life filled with miracles. His death was like a grain of wheat. He didn't stay in the ground, friends. That grain of wheat died, but came up, you see. And the liberal who said, the bones of Jesus sleep somewhere beneath Syrian skies has a problem on his hands. Where are the bones? They just don't happen to be there. And his resurrection was not spiritual, but it was actual. You see, there's a way of saying it thundered today. And the other is, an angel spoke to him. And this same old gag has been used down through the years. It thundered. Anyone can say it thundered. There's no mark of intelligence there. We need spiritual perception and appreciation to hear and to know and see the Son of God, my friend. And we need to recognize that when we come to his word. Now, will you notice? Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And this is a prophecy that he gave. You see, his death on the cross was the judgment of the world. The prince of this world is judged. That's one of the things the Holy Spirit will bear witness to. You and I live in a judged world today, and it was the death of Christ on the cross that made that, you see. He came to die a judgment death for the sins of the world. Now, if the world won't have it, the world is judged. And that's what our Lord is saying. But he said this, "...and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me." Now, somebody says, as I know they do, "...well, look, there are multitudes passing by the church, and they're not hearing the word. Just think of that great army of labor today." Think of the students that are not hearing the Word. Think of the man in uniform. Think of the white-collar group. Think of the rich today. And may I say to you, none of them are hearing the Word of God. And yet he said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men unto me. What's the problem? He's not being lifted up from the earth in the churches today. Then that's the reason that he's not drawing all men to him. You know, if we could get this Word of God out, it would be the most wonderful thing in the world. I wonder if I'm making myself clear to our listeners today how important it is to get the Word of God out. Listen to him here. If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. And that, my friend, is true. Somebody says, well, look, the gospel is being preached. You know, oh, no, they're not hearing it today, and you know they're not hearing it today. In our own land, there are as many pagans as there are in Russia. 
are in Africa. Now he says, this he said, signifying what death he should die. He's putting the emphasis on his death, you see, that it is his redemptive death that will draw man. The people answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. And how sayest thou the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Believe me, they were confused, that crowd. Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. May I say, this is his final departure. This is it. They've had it. Now, somebody says, but they were in the light in that day. What was wrong? Verse 37, But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? And that's the great redemptive chapter, the 53rd of Isaiah. Who's believed it? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. The thought here is just simply this. It's quite possible for a man to get up of a morning and say, I won't see, and he just won't open his eyes. That was the problem of these men. And the man will do that as blind as any other. These could have opened their eyes, they would not. That is the thing Isaiah is saying. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of them. But notice verse 42, "...nevertheless among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue." And we'll find two of them taking down the body of Jesus. Now verse 43, "...for they love the praise of man." more than the praise of God. That's unfortunate. I think there are secret believers today, by the way, but they're cowards. No question about that. Verse 44, Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. I am come a light unto the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. Isn't that an amazing thing? that he's saying here, I'm come a light unto the world. This is an extension of this time that he opened the eyes of the blind man. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I've spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. And friends, you'll be judged by the word of God, not by your little good works or what you think religion is. It's what the word of God says. Now, I'm going to read the last verse in this chapter, verse 50. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. Friends, the Lord Jesus gave 
four major discourses. Three of those discourses we've already seen are in the major portion in the Gospel of Matthew. We have there the Sermon on the Mount, so-called Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And then we have Matthew 13, the mystery parable discourse. And then we have Matthew 24 and 25, which is the Olivet Discourse. Now, they are important discourses. I wouldn't discount them for one moment. And those of you that have been with us as we went through Matthew know the significance we attach to each one of those discourses. But now we come to the Upper Room Discourse. That begins here in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. And as far as I can tell, this discourse is one of the greatest discourses our Lord ever gave. And not only that, it is the longest, by the way, also, but it's more meaningful for you and me today because he took his own in the upper room and revealed new truth to them. I think each one of these chapters that we have in this upper room discourse, beginning with John 13, will reveal new truth. And the interesting thing is, it's brand new and fresh to us today. There's nothing quite like it. Now, here in John 13, we see him going to the upper room with his disciples, and these 13 men are in the upper room. And as we begin chapter 13... And in chapter 13, he washes the feet of his disciples. That was a very unusual thing. By the way, at the beginning of John 12, this last chapter, you remember we were looking at the feet of the Lord. Now, in this chapter, we're going to see the feet of the disciples. And the feet of Christ were anointed, you will recall, But the feet of the disciples, now they're washed. What a difference. The Savior passed through this sinful world, and he contacted no defilement whatsoever. He was holy, harmless, and undefiled. And by the way, the feet speak of the walk of a person. And here we have the walk of our Lord. They were anointed with the fragrant spikenard that tells of the sweet savor of our Lord and the wonder of him today. Then you will notice that he washed the feet of his disciples here because they needed washing, as we shall see. And he used water. And the washing of the feet of the disciples was by water and not by blood. Now, that's very important. I hear so many people today talk about the fact that they must come anew to the fountain that's filled with blood and that sort of thing. May I say to speak like that, I think dishonors our Lord. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, does cleanse us from all sin. But that is the one sacrifice. And the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 14, 
By one offering he hath perfected forever them that are set apart. What a wonderful thing that we have here. And so we find that when you and I come as a sinner to Christ, it's the blood that once and for all cleanses us and gives us a standing before God. But my friend, we need to be purified along the pilgrim pathway because our walk through the world, we get a little dirty and we need the washing And we're going to see now that our Lord washed his disciples' feet, and it was for a very definite purpose. Now, there is given to us here a threefold reason of why he washed their feet. And I want you to notice that because that is very important. First of all, let me read, "...now before the feast of the Passover." And there's been much controversy as to what supper is referred to in John 13. It's not the Lord's Supper, we find, at all, because actually John does not record the Lord's Supper. By the way, many of you that have heard me speak on this before recognize that there are two things that are not recorded in the Gospel of John. One is the fact that we do not have the transfiguration in the Gospel of John. And we do not have the establishment of the Lord's Supper in the Gospel of John. This is the Passover Supper we're talking about here. And somebody might say, well, why in the world was that left out? It's so important. Why would it be left out? I think the reason is, I'm afraid a great many people today are attaching a great deal of importance to a ritual. And we do know that certain churches today do just that. At the present time, the Roman Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church are having quite a controversy as to whether Romanism should accept the communion or the Lord's Supper the way the Lutherans do it. You see, they have a certain similarity, it's true. But there is a danger of us today putting too great an importance on a ritual, friends, and not putting it upon the person of Christ. And I frankly think that's the reason that John did not include it. And now, here are the three reasons of why the Lord washed the disciples' feet. And keep this in mind as we deal with it. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father. Now, I wish I had time to deal with that a little more thoroughly, but let me just call your attention to several things. When Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he did it in view of the fact because he knew the time was coming that he was going to depart out of this world. Now, that's important to see because his ministry would continue after he went back to heaven of washing the feet of his own. And the very interesting thing here is that he takes the place of a servant. And there are those today that like to say that he's relinquished that place of a servant. Well, he's identified himself with his people. And today 
he still washes the feet of his disciples. Now notice, first of all, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world. What world? Well, this civilization that we're in, this civilization that's under judgment, this civilization that's anti-God and anti-Christ, this civilization that's in rebellion against God. He's leaving this world. And what he's doing, he's doing in view of that fact. Keep that in mind now. The second reason is this. He was departing out of this world unto the Father. Now, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them right on through to the very end. Actually, what we have here is this, that what he did, he did it because he loved his own, and he loved them right on through to the very end. Friends, he died down here to save us. He lives up yonder to keep us saved. We have a wonderful Savior, and he loves us right on through to the very end. Now, the third reason, and supper being ended. Actually, literal here is the supper was in progress. The Passover supper, they were celebrating it. Right in the midst of it, why, the devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. The Lord Jesus, you see, did this because there was an uninvited guest in the upper room. And that uninvited guest was Satan. He entered it. We speak, as I said a moment ago, 13 men went in that upper room. Thirteen persons. There was another person there making it 14. I think he didn't like the fact that 13 was an unlucky number, so Satan decided he'd come to that place. Oh, there's several wonderful things here. By the way, that number 13 we don't think is superstitious. We think it's scriptural. There should have been just 13 in the upper room. But the devil came in making it 14. Now, will you notice, he entered into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. And you know, the washing took place because of that, because others were affected by it. And you know, the devil today gets into Christian works. He gets into churches, and people get soiled and dirty. And the Lord wants to wash them, and he'll have to wash them as we shall see if you're to have fellowship with him. Now will you notice verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Now, let me change that a little. It'll be the better translation, I think, at least give us a better understanding. Since Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he was come from God, and that he's going to God. Now, that's reiterated, restated, that what he's doing is because he's returning back to the Father, and that's important because I believe he's washing feet today. I think that is his ministry. Now, notice what it says here. He riseth from supper and laid aside his upper garments. He didn't become nude. That's not the thought here. He laid aside his upper garments, that is, that robe that he wore, 
And he took a linen cloth. Our translation says towel. And frankly, there were no cannon towels in that day. That's what I think of when I think of a towel. And this was just a linen cloth. And he took a linen cloth and girded himself. Now, he's going to do a very strange thing. After that, he poureth water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel or the linen cloth wherewith he was girded. Now, this is a strange thing that he's doing. He takes the place of a servant. He never relinquished that place, by the way. And I think that he's girded today with the towel of service, that linen cloth of service, in which today he still washes the feet of those that are his own. And he did this because he loves his own right on through to the end. You remember when we were studying the book of Exodus, and back in the 21st chapter, there was the law concerning a Hebrew servant, that if he served his master well, the seventh year, he could go out free. But if he had, during that time he'd taken a wife and he had children, and the master says, you can go out free, but your wife and children can't. They're my slave. And he said, well, I love them, and I won't go out. I want to stay with them. And then the master would back him up to a doorpost and bore his ear through with an awl. Actually, that's translated later on as he was crucified. And the Lord Jesus came down to this earth, took upon himself our humanity, made in the likeness of a servant, and he took that character. And he did it because he loved us, and he died on a cross that he might provide salvation for us, and he's identified with us. What a wonderful position that is. And what a wonderful relationship that is. And he did that because he wants to have fellowship with us. And we are today to recognize that we are his servants. And that the day's coming, we're told that we're going to sit down with him, and he's going to serve us even in the future. That's going to be an unusual thing, is it not? Now, will you notice that he is going now to cleanse those that are his own? And we see it in his washing of Simon Peter. He cometh to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Now, there are those, you know, that attempt to say that all that you have here is just an example of humility. Well, friends, I think that they would have got that message, but the Lord said to Simon Peter, What I'm doing thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. And I very frankly believe that there's more here than that. Now, there are others that will say that it's an example for us. Because we're told in verse 14, "...if I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye ought also to wash one another's feet." And they practice it. And I have no objection to that. The late Dr. Louis Bauman here in Southern California heard me on this chapter, 
And he sent word to me that he said, I agree with everything that you said. I believe there's a great spiritual meaning here that you might miss, by the way. And we don't want to miss that. It's very important to get that. Now, Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. What did our Lord mean by that? What he meant is, you will have no fellowship with me. You see, this is the Passover feast. And our Lord arises from the Passover feast. That Passover speaks of his death. He rose in resurrection, and he went back to heaven, girded himself with a towel of service, and he's saying to you and me, if I don't wash you, you will have no part with me. How does he wash us today? Well, we're clean, he says, through the word that I've spoken unto you. And in Psalm 119.9, it says, "...wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word." And Christ also loved the church. He gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. And so he loved the church, and having loved his own, he loved them right through to the end, and he cleanses them. And if we're to have fellowship with him, we must, my friend, have him cleanse us. And how does he cleanse us? Well, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And a great many folk today don't emphasize that enough. They think that's a light matter. Well, my friend, may I say to you, the feet speak of the walk. And when you and I become disobedient, we're not walking in his way. And that is sin, and that needs to be confessed. And then you and I get our feet dirty in this world. Because listen to what he says here. Jesus saith unto him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and you're clean, but not all. You see, the language that he uses here in verse 10 doesn't give the meaning. The first word is luo, and that means to apply water to the whole body. And the one that's bathed, he needeth not to wash, just except his hands. And that's another word, nipto. And it's a picture in that day of the public baths. A man would go and take a bath, and he'd put on his sandals to come home. And in every home, there was this basin of water in order for them to wash their feet because they'd get dirty walking through the Oriental or the first century streets of the cities of that day because that's where the garbage was put. And so they had to... Wash when they entered the house. Now, our Lord says, when you came to the cross, when you came to me, you washed all over. But when you walk through this world, you get dirty. We become disobedient. And sin gets into our lives. And I don't think, friends, any believer goes through a day without getting just a little dirty. And he says, you'll have no part with me. And friends, don't play that down. He says, you'll have no fellowship with him. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie, John says. But if we walk in the light, 
That is, the Word of God is He's in the light. We have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ just keeps on cleansing us from all sin. Now, after he did that, he said, so after he'd washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down, he said unto them, Know ye what I've done to you? Now, if it was just a lesson in humility, they had got the message. And if it was only just washing their feet, I think Peter would have spoken up and said, Sure, we know what you did. You washed their feet. But you see, there's something more there than that. He says in verse 17, If ye know these things, happy are you if ye do them. You want joy in your life today, Christian friend? I don't care who you are or how good you think you are. You better go to him and confess. Confess the fact you're disobedient. Confess the fact of your thoughts that are wrong. Confess your acts that you've done. You see, we need to confess. And he very frankly says, you have no fellowship with me. Now, what does it mean, though? If I've washed your feet, you're to wash one another's feet. Well, I'll tell you how we do that. Notice what he said to Mary and Martha, and he was speaking actually to Martha. He said, Mary hath chosen that good part. Well, that good part that Mary chose was to sit at Jesus' feet. And I think that you have that mentioned in Second Corinthians 6.15. What concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel, that is, fellowship. And you can't have fellowship with him until he takes your feet into his hands. Now, feet speak of our walk down here, and our feet must be in his hands, and that simply means that we must completely yield to him. This idea today that this business of confession of sin is a pretty insignificant thing is entirely wrong. If we confess our sins, means that you go and you put your feet in his hands for him to cleanse and for him to wash. And he's still in the business of washing feet. Now, somebody is going to say, well, what does it really mean to be washed by the Word of God? You mentioned that last time. Well, will you listen to what he says in Psalm 139, 23, and 24? You and I need to go to him. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And my friend, you and I today need to recognize that we are sinners and that we need to be cleansed. Which one of you that can say today, well, I have no sin in my life? I doubt whether there's anyone that can say that. Now, this man, Simon Peter, was very impulsive. You remember, he said, now, I want you to wash my hands and my head. He goes to the opposite extreme. This man, he was warm-hearted, but he was certainly dull-minded. He didn't quite get all this. And our Lord made it clear to him that when you come to him for salvation, that you are cleansed and all you need is to have your feet washed. 
because that is a washing that comes when you and I sin. And there's not a one of us that can go through one day and live without sin. And we need to pray, Lord, forgive us our trespasses. And we hear a great deal today about that we need to recognize that we need to be cleansed. And he says, if ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. And friends, that means to go to him in confession. And if you're his child, it means that you're putting your feet in his hands. And that means you're completely yielding to him. That's what it means to confess your sins. And that is something that's desperately needed today. Now, will you notice that immediately having given this, he continues now and notice what he says. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the Scripture might be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. And that's Psalm 41.9 that he's quoting here. Now, this is something that we need to note here. He's referring to Judas, and not only is he referring to Judas, it's not a question of this man losing his spiritual life, but it rather reveals that he never had any spiritual life. That's the fact. He's not a sheep of Christ becoming unclean, but he happens to be a pig that's returned to its wallowing again, or the dog that's returned to his vomit. That's the picture of Judas Iscariot here. And yet he was there in the upper room, and this man, very frankly, he got his feet washed here. But you see, the washing was the washing by the Word of God. And he rejected that totally. Actually, the blood of Christ is Godward, and the water points manward. The blood is for the expiation of our sin, and the water is for our moral purification. And the precious blood, you hear this said today, all the blood is applied to my heart. My friend, it's not applied to your heart. It's canceled my guilt. That's what's happened. And it has washed out that awful black account which was against me on high. And it's given me a standing before God. And it's blotted out my transgressions. And therefore, they are not against me today. And the blood is for penal expiation, but the water is for moral purification. Now, will you notice here this man as he comes, and I want to read this passage here. I'm reading beginning at verse 19. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. And this is Something, by the way, Judas was not present. I think this makes it clear for the institution of the Lord's Supper. We don't even have that given in the Gospel of John. And we mentioned last time that there's no transfiguration in John's Gospel, and there's no institution of the Lord's Supper. 
And it's the evident fact God didn't want this to become a ceremony and a ritual and people thinking if they just go through it that it's meaningful. Now, he's giving us, John's giving us the record of this last discourse, and he's emphasizing that. Now, he identifies who he's talking about. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth, whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. Judas is totally rejected Jesus Christ. Now, when Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spoke. This man, Judas, had been so clever that not a person there believed that he was the one. Each one thought might be the other, and in fact, the matter is they could ask, Is it I? The question is often asked, Did Judas partake of the Lord's Supper? Of course not, because it's not even recorded here in John's Gospel. Well, you notice, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, and we believe that, of course, is John. And notice here, Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. Now, this byplay, I do not think, was observed or noted by the others, but we need to note it, or there'll be a certain amount of confusion here. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, He it is, to whom I shall give a sop when I've dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, you see, Judas here stood at the crossroads. This is his last chance. And the sop was sort of like a toast. It was a token of friendship. It's as it were, Christ kept the door open to Judas up to the very last. And we're going to see that later. But you remember that when he even came out with the soldiers to arrest Jesus, he made the statement at that time, that is, the Lord Jesus did to him, "'Friend, wherefore art thou come?' Even to the very last, the door was kept open. And it's as it were, the Lord is saying, "'You fulfill prophecy.'" And it's not too late for you, Judas, to accept me. And the Lord Jesus is just keeping the door open even here. Now, he knew what Judas would do. May I repeat the statement of another here? Foreknowledge is not causation. That is, because the Lord knew it doesn't mean he forced him to do it. Now, will you notice? And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. And he made the decision. God never sent a man to hell who did not first of all send himself there. You see, God ratifies human decisions. God just seconds the motion. When a man says, I make a motion, I accept Christ, God says, I second it, I receive you. When a man says, I reject Christ, as this man did, why, God says, I second the motion. That's exactly what you have. Now, Judas must move hurriedly. You see, having made his decision, 
He's not beyond the control of God. He's compelled to cooperate with God, having made this decision. In other words, even the religious rulers didn't want to arrest him and to crucify him during the feast. They wanted to wait till it's over. Our Lord says, you'll have to move quickly. And so this man actually went out. He went out to let them know that he'd been found out. Notice what is said here, which is quite interesting. Verse 28, Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. No one at the table even suspected up to that time that Judas was the betrayer. Now will you notice verse 29, For some of them thought because Judas had the bag, he was the treasurer. And you always got to watch, friends, the fellows that handle the money. And that's true in church work. You keep your eye on the deacons, by the way. They handle the money. For some of them thought because Judas had the bag that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. And at Passover season, they did that, you know. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, And notice, it was night, and friends, it was eternal night for Judas. It was the devil's day, and the devil's day is Egyptian darkness for any man. That's the reason that they have to have so many lights on Broadway and Hollywood Boulevard, because on the devil's way, you got to light it up, friends, because it's dark. Eternal night the man walked out into. Now, will you notice there's something else here, a new section now. Judas is gone, and our Lord now begins to talk to this man. And already at this time, sin is knocking at the door of the upper room, demanding its pound of flesh. Already the shadow of the cross has fallen over that little group in the upper room, and they're frightened. And now our Lord attempts to lift these men from the low plane to the high plane, from the here and now to the hereafter, from the material to the eternal, from that which is secular to that which is spiritual. And as he does, we're going to see he's interrupted, and that'll move us right into chapter 14. Actually, I think that chapter 14 begins right here. Now, will you notice verse 31? Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him... God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. You see, the Lord Jesus now is moving into the spiritual realm. The Son of Man's going to be glorified. And Christ was glorified, friends, in his death and resurrection. We need to recognize that. Now, if God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify them. Now he speaks to them, and he calls them little children. Listen to him. Yet a little while I'm with you, 
Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, Whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you, He's saying to them, and he's speaking to them like little children. He says, I'm going to leave you. But now that I'm going to leave you, I'm leaving you a new commandment. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Unfortunate, we have some folk today that think that what he really meant is this, that by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you're fundamental in the faith. Now, friends, I believe in being fundamental in the faith. I believe in the inerrancy of the Word of God. I believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Scriptures. I believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. I believe that he died on the cross for the expiation of sin that he died a substitutionary, vicarious death for the sins of the world, that he was raised bodily, that he ascended back into heaven, that he's coming personally someday to take his church out of the world. But I want to say this, and I want to say it very carefully. Believing those things don't convince the unsaved world outside. This idea today that if we're fundamental and if we believe the heavenly things, we can live like the devil down here. And we've got some in the church. They're mean. Oh, they're mean. They're gossipy. They are hateful. And they have evil in their hearts. May I say to you, friends, that's the reason the man on the outsides quit coming to church. It's the reason we're trying to go after him today and tell him that these folk that act like that are not really believers. I don't think they are. I've asked pastors all across this country, what percentage do they think of their church members are saved? And I get anywhere from 25 to 75 percent. And I would say today that even in our good churches, you can only save 50 percent of them are actually saved. The others are as phony as a $3 bill. May I say to you, he says that he's going to leave and the new commandment is that you love one another as I've loved you, that ye also love one another. And it's by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Remember, Tertullian says this, that the Roman government was disturbed about the church. They were growing beliefs and bounds, and they wouldn't even take a pinch of incense and put it before the image of the emperor, and they felt like they might be disloyal. And the spies went in and came back out, and this was the report they gave. It went something like this. These Christians are very strange people. They meet together in an empty room to worship. They do not have an image. They speak of one by the name of Jesus, who's absent, by the way, but they seem to be expecting him at any time. And my, how they love him and how they love one another. Now, if next Sunday spies came from Russia to see whether Christianity is genuine and they came to your church, friends, what would be the verdict? Would they go back and say, my, how these Christians love each other? Well, you answered, I can't for you. Now, Simon Peter 
heard our Lord talk about going away, and but that's all he heard. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whether I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Now, this is verse 36, by the way. Simon Peter, our Lord treated him as if he's juvenile. I personally believe this man never reached the age of mental and spiritual maturation until the day of Pentecost. In fact, I think he was rather childish again and again, always blundering. And he asked the question that only a child will ask. Where are you going? Now, he didn't hear anything about loving one another, but he heard a great deal about the fact he's going away. I remember years ago when my daughter was just a little girl, why, when I'd get ready to go on a trip, she'd always say, Daddy, where are you going? That's the first question. And then the second question that a child asks is, may I go with you? I want to go with you. And that's what my little girl would say. And the Lord Jesus treats him as you treat a child. He says, Whether I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Now, not now, but afterwards. Now, little Willie comes home from school. His mama's baked some cookies. And he said, Mama, can I have a cookie? She says, Not now, but after dinner. Now, little Willie doesn't care about after-dinner speeches, and he doesn't care about after-dinner cookies, but he wants them right now. And listen to Simon Peter. Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? You see, he seized on that word, the word that a child would seize on. And he says, I'll lay down my life for thy sake. And that man was honest when he said that. He was sincere. He meant every word of it. And that night he got a sword. He used it. He attempted to fight for his Lord that night. Oh, he only took off an ear, but that was because he was a fisherman and not a soldier. He really went after the other fellow's neck, but he only got his ear. But he was sincere when he said that. And our Lord told him the frightful thing, that that night he was to deny him. And then he gave him the first part of John 14.